Good evening. It's good to see everybody tonight. Uh, as Brother Justin mentioned, we're going to be studying Romans, the fourth chapter tonight. And this is a very pivotal chapter in this epistle that Paul wrote uh, as Paul begins to draw some of his thoughts toward a climax. We've looked at the first three chapters thus far, and what we've noticed is that Paul is writing to the church at Rome about the power of the gospel of Christ, and that it is God's saving power to all nations, not just to the Jewish nation, but also to the Gentiles. And God has brought everyone together in one body, both Jew and Gentile. And in doing that, what Paul has done is he has talked to both Jew and Gentile about God's righteousness and about who God is and about who we are in the sight of God. And his conclusion is the Gentiles lived in sin and they deserve to die. That's the conclusion. They all deserve death because of their sin. And then he tells the Jews, he says, and you're no better. He said, you've committed sin too. And he said, you're condemning them and you're doing the same things that they're doing. And his conclusion in chapter three is that all are unrighteous. There's none righteous. Now, that's not to say that some haven't been made righteous by God, but he's making a point about man in man's state without God. Nobody is righteous without God's grace, without God's saving power, without Jesus Christ. No person can stand before God and say, I am righteous. Why? He says, because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so as we ended chapter 3, we noted some things, and we're going to revisit some of those here in just a moment. But I want to read verses 1 through 3 to start our study tonight. And then we're going to have to do a little bit of review just so we can pick up kind of the fluidity of the thoughts that Paul is painting for us. I want to encourage you to study along with us tonight. Uh, there, there is no intent of deceiving anyone or creating any doctrines of man. We're just simply going to look at the scripture and try to examine the scripture for what it says in its context. Romans chapter 4 and verse 1. So after Paul brings all these thoughts to a head, he says, What shall we say then that, our, that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has somewhat or something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. You know, this is somewhat interesting because all of a sudden we just take this hard turn left. All of a sudden Abraham is brought up just out of nowhere. He starts talking about it. Why is he talking about Abraham? Why is he doing that? Well, let's back up for a minute. And before we do, I just want to draw some things out of this passage. What is he saying about Abraham? He's saying, what did Abraham have according to the flesh. What can we say about Abraham according to his flesh? Well, here's what he says. If Abraham was justified by works, he could boast. In other words, if Abraham would have been able to attain a level of righteousness in the, in the eyes of God where God said, Abraham, you've done so many good things, you are righteous, then Abraham could have boasted. Now, could he have done that before God? No. But he makes this point. How was it that Abraham became righteous? Was it Abraham's works? Was it something that was related to Abraham's flesh? And he's going to bring up circumcision. That's what he means. But he says, no. Abraham believed God. And so God accounted to him righteousness. He doesn't say Abraham was righteous. He said God gave him righteous. Now we're going to see this idea of accounted. We're going to see the word accounted, counted, 
uh, and it's, it, it could also be translated reckoned or considered. And what that means is, even though Abraham wasn't righteous, God considered him righteous on the basis of his faith. It wasn't because of Abraham's flesh, and it wasn't because of works that Abraham did. He had nothing to boast of when God said, Abraham, you're righteous. It was a gift from God. Now, let's go back to chapter 3 and let's notice why he brings up this idea of could Abraham boast because he just finished chapter 3 by saying, where is boasting then? And this is drawn off of that point of all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, therefore being justified freely by God's grace through, uh, re- through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. In other words, if God saved us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and he made us clean and he redeemed us and he brought us back to God through Jesus Christ, what do we have to boast about? Answer, nothing. Nothing. There is no boasting. Salvation's a gift from God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We don't earn salvation. We can't earn salvation. And there's no boasting that anyone can do if they're righteous because righteousness is not the result of man making himself righteousness, but of God making man righteous. So he says, where is boasting then? It is excluded. Well, what excludes boasting? The the law of works? No. The law of works actually leads toward boasting. That's what he means when he said about Abraham. If Abraham were justified by works, he could have boasted. Why? Because the law of works doesn't exclude boasting. The law of faith does, though. We cannot boast when we are made righteous, when we are justified by our faith, because we understand it is a gift from God. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith, listen, apart from the deeds of the law. That's a very important statement for our understanding. Because when we talk about works, what is he talking about? Why is he bringing up works? Why is is he even writing to, you ever thought about who he's writing to and why he's writing this? Let's continue our reading here in in Romans chapter 3, rather, in verse 29. He says, or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God, listen, who will justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make the law void through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So here's what he's talking about. He's already brought up the fact that the Jews and the Gentiles, they're looking at each other in a way that's not correct. The Jews are condemning the Gentiles for a lot of different reasons. Namely, they're looking at the Gentiles saying, well, they're not circumcised and they're not under the law. And that's a problem. And he says, look, God is not just the God of the Jews. He's the God of everybody. And God justified not only the Jews, he also justified the Gentiles. And that's what he means by he will justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. That's Jew and Gentile. And so he asked this question. This is a very logical and a very rational question. So think about this. If the law can't save us, And if us doing the law, the works of the law can't save us, then does the law then become void through the law of faith? The law of works, that is. Does it become void? He says, no, it doesn't become void. Now, there's been some debate and discussion. Is is he talking about the law of Moses? Is he talking about law in general? I believe he's talking about moral law, not necessarily the law of Moses. He's making a statement about law itself. Law can't justify. You say, well, it says thee. Well, actually, if you remove those words thee, this is how it would read in the Greek. 
And I had, I had somebody tell me one time, they said, well, that's because there was no def definite article the in Greek. That's untrue. Actually, the, the definite article the in the Greek is in the New Testament 8,497 times. 8,497. That's a lot. The, the word the does exist. And so when they use the word the in the Greek, they put the word there. Sometimes they put the word the there when there is no definite article. And if you think about what he's saying, do we make void law through faith? No. Law doesn't become void just because we're justified by faith. In fact, on the contrary, faith establishes law. What is it that drives us to follow God's law? It is our faith in him. And so it's a very logical and a very rational statement that he's making about law because sometimes people have a tendency to think, well, if we're saved by grace through faith, there is no law. Well, that's not true. There's still law. Now, there's not Moses' law. Moses' law was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And at the end of Jesus' life when he died on the cross, the old law was no longer an authority. And we see that all throughout the New Testament taught by Paul uh, and others. But law itself is established through faith. So let's slow down for a minute. I feel like I'm moving really fast. So let's think about why Paul is bringing up circumcision. And this is monumental to not only standing the book of Romans, but also Galatians, also Ephesians, also Colossians, and also the book of Hebrews. And the reason for that is because they lived during a time where the most pervasive doctrine that was being spread through the church was the Jews that were telling the Gentiles they could not be saved unless they were circumcised. And they also told them that they needed to keep the law of Moses. We find that here in Acts 15, 5, or verses 1 and verse 5 is the first time we ever see this brought up. Notice what, it, what Luke records for us. He says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you're circumcised after the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, to be very vague about circumcision, and we need to talk about it because it's in our text tonight, circumcision was, was where a man's foreskin was cut off. Now, that was all the way back to the time of Abraham. After it was instituted and done by Abraham, from that point on, every male child at eight days old had this surgical procedure where their foreskin was cut off. That was circumcision. It was a sign of the covenant that they were in with God. Now, they'd had this tradition all the way back to Abraham, and they were having trouble letting it go. But they thought that you had to be circumcised to be saved. So here's the problem. You've got thousands and thousands of Gentiles that come into the church. Guess how many of them are circumcised? None of them. Unless they were proselyted and, and they were circumcised by the Jews. None of these people were circumcised. Well, the, these Jews, they had a good heart. They just didn't understand what salvation was or how it came to man. And so they felt like circumcision was related to them being saved. Why? Because they'd done this since the time of Abraham. Notice verse 5, it gets even stronger. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, now listen, we, we might look at this and say, oh, well, that's the Pharisees. No, these were the Pharisees that believed. These are Pharisees who believe in Jesus, but their doctrine is still confused. So here's what they said. It's necessary to circumcise the Gentiles and command them to keep the law of Moses. So now we've got both of these things. So this is the reason why in those letters... Again, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, and Colossians that Paul talks over and over about the law, about circumcision, and about salvation. 
That's why he's talking about it. Because I want you to think about what, what would happen as a result of this. You've got a lot of people who are in the church who are doubting their salvation because of this doctrine. They have undermined the gospel of Christ. In fact, Paul puts it this way in Galatians 5. He says, I do not frustrate, or it's in Galatians 2 rather, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. They were frustrating the grace of God by teaching this. If man is saved by circumcision or by the law of Moses, guess what? He's not saved by grace. He's not saved by grace. And so Paul is going to point this out in regard to Abraham. Why is he talking about Abraham? Abraham's father of faith. He's going to remove Abraham from the argument. Why? Because Abraham was the first one to ever administer circumcision. And that was on the same day him and Ishmael, his son, were circumcised. So he's going to go all the way back to Abraham. And he says, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith. Now here's that word again, accounted for righteousness. These are actually the same Greek word, counted and accounted, same Greek word. What's it mean? Reckoned. So the wages are not reckoned of grace, but of debt. If you agree with an employer to work a job for a certain amount of wages and you do that work and he pays you a certain amount of wages, is that a work of grace on the employer's part? No. No, you earned it. You did the work. You get paid. You made an agreement. Is that what's happening here? No. That's not what's happening here. God is not our employer. He did not uh, employ us and tell us, if you'll work a certain amount, I will give you salvation. That's not how it works. What happened? God looked down and we didn't deserve it. We deserve death. We deserve punishment. But God gave us grace. And so this salvation that he's talking about was accounted for righteousness. It was a justification of the ungodly. That's going to be very important to understanding this. Look at verse 6. Just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God, here it is again, same word. It was counted, then accounted, now it's imputes, but it's the same Greek word. Unto whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes David, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord shall not, same Greek word, impute sin. This is all about how God reckons a person, how he considers a person. And he said it's a blessing from God when God looks at a sinner but doesn't impute their sin to them. It's a blessing when God covers that sin, when he forgives that sin. So what does this word actually mean? What's that word mean? What is righteousness? Well, it's goodness, right? It's goodness. Okay, what does he mean here? What's righteousness? What does he mean he imputed righteousness to Abraham? Well, David describes it for us. What did he say? Sins are covered. Sins are forgiven. Sin is not imputed. So what is righteousness? It's when sin is removed. See, righteousness is not a level of goodness that we attain. It's a pardon of God where he declares us, even though we're not innocent, he declares us innocent. He says, you have no sin. I'm not imputing your sin to you. You're not guilty. That's righteousness. So when God imputed righteousness to Abraham, what did he do? 
Did he say, Abraham, you've done so much, you're a good person now. You're right here, you're righteous. No. He said, Abraham, your sins are forgiven. You know why? Because Abraham was not perfect. He was a sinner who needed God to impute righteousness to him just like me and you. Abraham lied. You remember that? He goes into this, in, into this kingdom and he, he, he's got this beautiful wife and he says, honey, just tell them that we're not married. Tell them you're my sister so they don't kill me. What, was that, is that okay? No. I'm sure that's not the only time Abraham sinned in his life. Abraham needed forgiveness just like we do and that's why David is connected here with righteousness. David described what a blessing it was for a person to be imputed righteousness without works of the law. Forgiveness from God. So Paul says this, does this blessedness, what's he mean? Does this blessedness, let's back up again. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds, blessed is the man. So we, we understand what the blessing is, don't we? So does this blessedness of forgiveness, of pardon, does it come on the circumcision only, on the Jew, or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say, listen, we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. This is why he brings up Abraham. Because they believe salvation cannot be had unless a person circumcised. You know what he just told them? Abraham was saved before he was circumcised. So explain that. If you have to be circumcised to be saved, then why is Abraham saved before he's circumcised? Very logical argument, isn't it? When was this promise made to Abraham? Genesis 15, 6. This is what Paul is quoting in Romans 4. He believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. Genesis 17, 24. This is Abraham's circumcision. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, listen, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael. Now, here's what we know. We know for certain that at least there was 13 years before uh, Abraham was circumcised from the time that God accounted righteousness to Abraham. 13 years. 13 years before Abraham was circumcised, God said, you're righteous. Well, how do you know it's 13 years? Because he had no kids. In fact, they hadn't even moved to the place where they lived for 10 years when Sarah told uh, Abraham to take Hagar for a wife and have Ishmael. So we're talking about nearly a quarter of a century from the time God declared him righteousness to the point where he was circumcised. So what's Paul, he's, making, he's just making a case. That's all he's doing. You don't need to be circumcised to be saved. And here's how I know. Abraham was saved. He was justified by God. He didn't need to be circumcised. He wasn't circumcised. It says he received the sign of circumcision. Now listen, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. He said all that the circumcision was was a seal of a righteousness that God had already given him. It wasn't what saved him. It was just a sign of the covenant that he was in with God because of his faith. So, he goes on to say that he might be the father of all those who believe. 
though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who, do, who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Okay, that's really, really wordy. So let's make it really simple. Here's what he's saying. He's saying Abraham is not just the father of the Jew. He's the father of the faith, not only to the Jew, but he's the father of the faith to the Gentiles. Why? Because they have the faith of Abraham. Are we taught this somewhere else in scripture? Yes, we are. Now, I got a question. And I think it's necessary that we ask this question and we kind of spend a little bit of time for a moment. Does Paul's teaching in Romans 4 and other passage that Paul taught contradict what James taught in James chapter 2? Because if we look at what Paul says, he says a man is saved by faith, not works, right? That's what he said. But I want you to notice what James says, James chapter 2. Was not our father Abraham justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. It sounds like a complete contradiction, doesn't it? You know, some have even said James was a heretic. That's what it was. James was a heretic because he disagreed with Paul. He actually doesn't disagree with Paul. You say, well, how could that be? One says you're saved by faith, not works. One says you're saved by works and faith. Well, let's think about this logically, okay? Let's think about this situation right here, him offering Isaac, his son, on the altar. Now, what does he quote Genesis 15, 6? Now, we talked about there being about 25 years from the time of Ishmael turning 13 and Abraham and Ishmael being circumcised. How long was it before he took Isaac up on the mountain? A lot longer than that, maybe 40 years. It was a long time. Isaac's a, a, what most people think is probably a teenager when Isaac goes up on the mountain and Abraham offers Isaac. But he's still connecting this same idea that Abraham believed God. Well, how do you know that? How do you know Abraham believed God? He said, because he offered his son. Well, that's 40 years later. You know, one of our problems is we, we read the words, Abraham believed God, and we think he's talking about an event. Abraham believed God that day, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Is that what he means? Abraham believed God that moment. No, he means Abraham believed God, his life was a manifestation of his belief and his faith and his trust in God. If Abraham had believed God that day but didn't believe God the next day, Abraham wouldn't have had righteousness accounted to him. God does not impute righteousness to a person who has a moment of faith. He imputes righteousness to the person that lives by faith. Abraham walked by faith, lived by faith. Abraham believed God and behold the evidence that Abraham believed God. Listen to what God said when Abraham offered Isaac. Genesis chapter 22 verse 10. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Well, some said, well, that's the angel. The angel speaking on behalf of God. Notice, you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. This is God speaking through the angel. What did God say for now I know? Now you know what? I thought God was all-knowing. He is. What is he saying? What you've just done 
is a manifestation of why I made you righteous. Because you are a man of faith. And you've proven that. That's what James is saying in James chapter 2. How do we know that Abraham had faith? How do we know? He says, you see how that faith wrought with his works and how faith was made perfect by his works? Now, here's why they're not contradicting each other. I want you to think for a moment that there's two audiences of people. And on one of those sides of those audiences, you've got this pendulum swing where people believe that we are saved by works. In other words, man saves himself. That's who Paul was writing to. That's who he's discussing righteousness with, people who think that their own works would save them. Now, on the other hand, on the other side of that pendulum, you've got these people that think we're saved by belief alone. And that means that man is required to do absolutely nothing. Guess who's writing to that audience? James is. Because faith is not simply a, a mental reaction that happens. It's not just something that happens within the inner man. That's not the nature of biblical faith. So let's first think about this. And I want to paraphrase Paul's words that we've looked at so far as he is talking to this audience and his explanation to them who think they're saved by circumcision and by the works of the law of Moses. Here's Paul's explanation. He's saying a man doesn't make himself righteous because he works, nor is he righteous because he is circumcised or born an Israelite. That's supposed to be un-Israelite, not and Israelite, by the way. A man is made righteous. In other words, righteousness is imputed to man. He doesn't make himself righteous, even though he doesn't deserve it because of his faith in God. Even if he is an uncircumcised Gentile who doesn't follow Moses' law, righteousness is an imputed gift. It's not earned. Isn't that a good explanation? That's Paul's explanation. I've just paraphrased it to this doctrine that was causing people to doubt their faith. That's the explanation he gave them. James is not writing to this audience. He's not writing to people who have a misunderstanding of works. They actually have a misunderstanding of faith. And James is trying to explain to them that faith is really not faith if it doesn't have action. Faith is not, it's not useful. He even calls it dead. Faith is dead if it's by itself. So let's think about what James says. God doesn't justify us through faith for simply believing. Faith is only effective when it is a living faith. Our faith is only living if it is obedient and working. If it's only a belief in the heart of the mind, it's a dead faith and God will not impute righteousness to us based on a dead faith. That's the case James is making. Abraham was justified by works of faith, not works of the law, not works of righteousness. He wasn't trying to work himself to righteousness. It was just evidence that he believed God. There are two different types of works. We, we see these two words used, and they're used in the English language. We go, well, works must mean the same thing. Look, sometimes the works, like in James' case, means doing something. That's what it means, doing something. But when Paul's talking about works in Romans, who's he writing to? What works is he talking about? He's talking about the deeds of the law. He's talking about works of righteousness, which men attempt to do in order to make themselves righteous. And really the discussion is more about where righteousness comes from. Is righteousness the result of a gift that is handed down by God, or is righteousness something that I can reach out myself and grab and take? Because man can't save himself. But where the discussion usually leads is, is if man cannot be saved... Through works, which I agree with, man cannot be saved through works. What did Paul say? 
Did Paul reject the idea of faith being obedient and therefore works of faith nullify faith? No. This is Romans. This is the letter. This is how he starts the letter out. This is Paul. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about, listen, the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. What is obedience of faith? It's what James was writing about. That when you believe something, you act upon it. You act upon that faith. That's obedience of faith. In fact, he bookends the letter by saying this once again in chapter 16 at the very end of Romans. He says this, But now is manifested, talking about Jesus Christ, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, listen, who has made known to all nations, leading to obedience of faith. Paul did not preach, all you have to do is believe in your mind. He wasn't preaching that. That wasn't the audience he had. That was not their misunderstanding. He was trying to correct their misunderstanding that man could save himself through his own works. And he said, that's ridiculous. And you're undermining the gospel of Christ. You can't earn salvation. Salvation is a gift. It's a gift. So going back to Romans chapter 4 now, he says, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of none effect because the law brings about wrath for where there is no law, there's no transgression. I want to point this out once again. So the promise that God made to Abraham, you will be heir. That was the promise he made. You will inherit. And he said that promise that he made to Abraham was not dependent on the law. Well, for one thing, the law didn't exist When God made that promise to Abraham, the law was not yet to come until the time of Moses. So how could Abraham's promise be dependent upon his keeping of the law? It couldn't. That's his point. How did it come? How was it fulfilled? Through the righteousness of faith. But it wasn't just Abraham, listen, or to his seed. That promise that was made that the seed of Abraham would inherit had nothing to do with their keeping of the law. Everything to do with them being made righteous through faith. Now listen to verse 14. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of none effect. That's another one of those collegiate concepts, but it's really simple when you think about it. If the promise was fulfilled as a result of man's righteousness and not God's faithfulness, then it's really not a promise at all, is it? It's not a promise. God made the promise. God fulfilled the promise. It had nothing to do with whether man obeyed or didn't obey or followed the law or didn't follow the law. God made the promise. God was going to keep the promise. And God kept the promise. And he kept the promise through their trust in his promise. And what was the promise? That Abraham and his seed would be heirs. Now, do we see this taught somewhere else? This idea of heirs? Well, yes, we do. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. You're all the sons of God through what? Through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now listen to verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Now listen to verse 29. And if you belong to Christ, then are you Abraham's descendants, his seed and heirs according to the promise. So what did Paul just say in Romans 4? Those that are heirs, that are the seed of Abraham, it had nothing to do with the law. What's he say here? Same thing. How is a person made an heir? Through faith in Christ Jesus. But I want you to notice this. Look at the connection. 
You're sons of God, how? Through faith. And then he says, here's why. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ, and now you belong to Christ. And so therefore, you're an heir. Now what happens a lot of times, we read this idea of not of works and people automatically reject baptism. They say, well, that's a work. Where does the Bible say baptism is a work? Nowhere. It never says that. What is baptism in the scriptures? It's a work of faith. It's not only a work of faith, it's a work of faith that leads to clothing ourselves with Christ, belonging to Christ, and becoming an heir of the promise. This is connected with this, just like James said. We must obey through our faith. And what's the point? There's no Jew or Greek. You don't need to be circumcised. There's, there, there's, you need to quit arguing about this. There's no need to be circumcised. He says the same thing in Colossians chapter 2. He says, in Jesus or in him, you were also circumcised. He's writing to Gentiles. He says, you're already circumcised. Not physically. He said, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, they did not have a, a physical operation. He's using circumcision as an allegory here. And he's saying, look, you don't need to be circumcised. You've already been circumcised. You had a circumcision. And what was cut off in that circumcision? Look at verse 11 again. And putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. What's cut off in this circumcision he's talking about? Sin is. Sin is cut off, right? That's the circumcision of Christ. Then he tells us what the circumcision is in verse 12. Buried with him in baptism. Now listen, in which you were also raised with him through what? Faith. In what? The working of God. Does that sound like faith to you? What's the result of this circumcision? He says, in you, being dead in your trespasses, talking about their former state, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Buried with him in baptism. What is that? Well, let's think about this for a moment. Uh, I had a heart surgery last year. I had a heart surgery because they could do the surgery and I couldn't. Now, Toy would say I was very stubborn about that and stayed at the house for way too long, and she's right. But I eventually ended up at the hospital, ended up in the hands of somebody who could perform a life-saving operation. Or at least he told me it was a life-saving operation. I have no need to doubt him. But imagine that I'd have come out of that heart surgery and gotten recovery and Toy walked in and I looked at her and I said, did you just see what I did? She's like, what? Did you not see what I did? I just saved my own life. She'd be like, honey, they give you too much anesthesia or something. You're talking crazy. You, you did nothing. You laid on a table and they gave you some drugs and they ran something up into your arteries and they fixed you. You did nothing. Well, I did it. Well, no, I didn't do it. And I want you to think about this. This is what the Bible teaches about baptism. Baptism is the work of God. Paul calls it a spiritual operation or a circumcision wherein God cuts off sin. He makes us alive and forgives us all trespasses. In other words, he's the surgeon and we are the patient. And all we do is submit and put our life in his hands and say, okay, fix me, work me. Do the work. Yes, there's work done in baptism. It's done by God. God removes the sin. He makes us alive. It's not a work that we do. We just submit to it. Why? Because we put our faith and our trust in the operation, in the working of God Almighty. That's all it is. It's a work of faith. 
1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Paul just says it saves you. Well, how? Not as a removal of dirt from the body. You ever heard somebody say there's no power in that water? There's not. There's no power in that water. There's no special water. Nobody gets baptized in special water. The water is just water. It's just water. It's not an outward washing. What is it? He says it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. What is baptism? It's when I say, God, I'm appealing to you to make me right. Cleanse me. Don't just wash my record, but cleanse my conscience. Wash me on the inside. That's why he says it's not a removal of dirt from the body. It's a washing of the inner. It's an appeal. Why? Because we're putting our faith and our trust and our confidence in God's saving power, not in our own. See, baptism is the very opposite of these works that Paul was talking about in Romans. Let's go back to Romans now and finish out the chapter. Romans chapter 4 and verse 16, he says, Therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now listen to verse 17. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. That was the promise made to Abraham. Not one nation, not Israel, but Many nations I've made you a father of them. And in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who, li- who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Now, that could be a very challenging statement. What was dead? What did they consider dead? And what was it that God was going to give life to? Well, we don't know yet. I mean, it's somewhat ambiguous, isn't it? But just stay tuned. He's going to tell us here in a moment. Now look at verse 18, who contrary to hope in hope believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Okay, now this is giving us a clue as to what Abraham was actually believing, that he be a father. That's what Abraham believed when God promised you'll be a father. Okay, lots of people are fathers. Let's read the next verse. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body, listen, already dead. Now do you understand why he makes this statement? He believed God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Now, here's the thing. A 99-year-old man and an 89-year-old woman don't have kids. They don't. It doesn't happen. But they did. And Abraham believed God. But let's think about this. Did Abraham believe God when Sarah said, take Hagar? No. He lost his belief, didn't he? And then God said, you send her away just like your wife wants. You send Hagar and her son away. He's not the heir. You're going to have a child with Sarah. So why does he say he's a faithful man who believed God's promises? I'll tell you why. Because he went and laid with his wife. To have a child at 99 years old with her being 89 years old, even though the deadness of Sarah's womb, God gave life to, to bring forth a son. And it says, Abraham did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. Yes, he had a moment where he was doubting. Sarah had a moment. Sarah laughed when God told her she'd have a child. But what did they eventually do? They obeyed God and God counted them faithful. You want to know what faith is? Look at verse 21. And being fully 
convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. That's faith. Faith is not, well, I believe God exists and I believe Jesus is his son and I believe he died for my sins. Faith is when we are convicted, when we are persuaded, when we are fully convinced that whatever God promises, he said he will do. He will perform what he promised. That's why he called Abraham the father of faith. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it might be imputed to him, but also for us. In other words, God didn't say, I'm imputing righteousness just for, so Abraham would know. But he said that for us too. And he says, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised for our justification. Why did God tell us that Abraham had righteousness imputed to him? So we could understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because I'll tell you, men have tried and tried and tried to attain to some level of goodness so that God looks at them and says, you're good enough. And I'm going to tell you, that is futile. If we committed one sin in life and every other deed that we did was good, guess where we'd be? Unrighteous. That's where we'd be. One sin would give us unrighteousness and we would need God to impute righteousness to us because we will never attain it on our own. Put your trust and your faith and your hope in him. You know, I heard this allegory about grace and I thought it was a really good allegory. It was about a man who was on a plane and the pilot comes back and he says, okay, he says, I'm sorry to tell you this, but we're having mechanical failures. The plane is going down. They said, oh my goodness, what are we gonna do? And he said, well, I'm gonna give you two options. He said, I'll tell you what, uh, if you want to, he said, just jump out of the plane. He said, what? He said, just jump out and just flap your arms. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. And he says, well, okay, here's option two. I packed this parachute, okay? I've done many jumps. It's packed right. I will go down with you, and at the appropriate time, I'll tell you to pull the cord. He said, let's do that. I'll tell you, that really illustrates these two ideas. Because man jumping out of the airplane trying to flap his arms and fly, he's going to hit the ground. And that's exactly what's going to happen if we try to work our way to salvation. You're flapping your arms. God's given us the parachute, He's going to tell us when to pull it. He's given us a guarantee to safety. And if we trust in that, if we put our faith in God, we will be saved. Not because we're good, but because he's good. It's just because we're faithful to him. If you have not been baptized into Jesus Christ, if you have not submitted yourself in humble submission to fa in faith to him, God wants to cleanse you. He wants to impute righteousness to you. God doesn't want any person to be lost. But even since Jesus died on the cross and gave the great commission to the apostles, men have rejected his grace and mercy. And if we do that, we're going to stand before him one day and we're going to give account. But God is a good God. He's a loving God and he wants us to be saved. But we have to trust in him.